0: Uh, Your second scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 through 26. Um, And it goes like this, From then on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him and began to tell him off. That's the last thing God would want, Master. Master. That is never, ever going to happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you're trying to trip me up. You're trying, you are looking at things not like God does. You are looking at things like a mere mortal. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, they must give themselves up and pick up their cross and follow me. Yes, if someone wants to save their life, they will lose it. And if anyone loses their life for my sake, they will find it. What use will it be otherwise if you win the whole world but forfeit your true life? What will you give to get your life back? Let's get started. So the first children's sermon that Chuck asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, um, the woman in the story was called A Dog by Jesus. Um, and in the text that I got for today's sermon, Jesus calls Peter Satan. So I'm really grateful to Chuck for giving me the easy ones right off the bat. <sighs> uh, you know, trying to explain the easy stuff, right? But I think when we begin this part of the text, we have to address the elephant in the room in regards to this passage of scripture. And that is, how was Peter the rock last week, Right? Last week in the passage of Scripture, Peter confesses that Jesus, you are the Christ. And then Jesus calls Peter the rock that he will build his church. So he goes straight from the Pope to the devil in about ten passages of Scripture. Right? So we're going to get into that. How do you go from the Pope to the devil so quickly? Uh, But first I want to tell you guys a story. Can you all hear me? Okay. You can hear me? Okay, good. I'll back off of it. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But first I want to tell you guys a story. Some of you know that uh, I grew up in a large family. I have three brothers. I have two sisters. I'm right in the middle. I know it's hard to be in the middle of six, but the end are twins. So I'm right in the middle. I grew up in a very large family in a very large household and we were stair-stepped. It was just every two years there was another winter. And uh, we grew up in smaller houses, like there was uh, oftentimes we were in three-bedroom houses where girls are in one room, boys are in the other, and that's how life was. So because of that, uh, I'm really close with all of my siblings, right? We're very comfortable with each other, we're real connected. We hung out a lot as young kids. So from 15 to 25-ish, we still do, but we hung out a whole lot. And so one of these times we were hanging out, I was about 17 and I was at the house and my mom is about to leave to go to the grocery store and she comes and asks me if I can cook dinner that night. And I thought, that's easy enough request. I can totally do that. Me and mom were good and she was cool with this request. She leaves, takes half the kids and it was just me and my brother hanging out, my oldest brother. And he comes up and says, you know what we should do? We should see if any of these bag of damp fireworks lights. And I said, you know what? That's the best idea you've ever had. Let's totally do that. Let's see if a bag of wet fireworks will light. So we obviously didn't go outside. We sat in the kitchen and uh, lit firecrackers and just threw them at each other, right? (laughs) Because that's the thing you do when you're a child. And so I lit firecrackers, and you just hear, light, pow, light, pow, light, pow. And then I heard light, And I thought, oh, God. Um, and so I look over, and my brother said, this one looks really cool. And he lit what, I don't know if any of you removed what a mortar shell is, but normally those you put in a large tube, and it has a long fuse on it, so you light it and stick it in a tube and run away, and it shoots about 50 feet in the air and blows up. Well, we lit that in the kitchen <laughs> on a dinner plate because that was going to save the house. You know, you light firecrackers on a dinner plate. Um, And so it blows up like it would. It was not wet enough. It was not one of the wet ones that did not blow up. It blew up. It caught the tile on fire. It caught the curtains on fire. And then smoke completely filled the kitchen, right? And granted, I'm 17, so Daniel's, I don't know, 21. I don't know. He's older than me. Um, So we're doing responsible young adult things. And uh, we lit the kitchen on fire. Um, And so, it wasn't too bad, we put most of it out, but uh, as soon as the smoke is filled everywhere, and as soon as I realize Daniel's still alive after he's hiding behind the couch, um, and I hear the front door open, and I just thought, oh heavens, I'm dead. I'm dead, I wasn't dead five minutes ago, I'm dead. And my mom walks in, she had forgotten her coupons for the grocery, and smoke just starts billowing out of the house, right? So the same woman I talked to 20 minutes before that was like, hey, almost adult young child, will you do something responsible for me? And I was like, yeah, sure, I could totally do that. Went straight from that to I'm sure it was obscenities at that point um, because I did a dumb thing. I did a dumb thing, right? And so I'm pretty sure that's where we're at with Peter in this story. We go from, hey, Peter, you're pretty cool. We're on the same page. I'm the Messiah, and you recognize that. We're on the same page to get behind me, Satan, really fast, right? Because Peter says a dumb thing. Peter wasn't horrible or bad or literally Satan, as I've heard some people argue. He was none of those things. He just did something kind of dumb. If you notice in the text, he literally tries to tell Jesus what God would want. The translation that I read out, of, it was the N.T. Wright translation, reads it like this, Peter, Peter took him. It makes it sound like he grabbed him, right? Peter took him and began to tell him off. That's the last thing God would want, master. That will never, ever happen to you. So I, feel, I begin to feel sorry for Peter right here. And to, it, to begin to think that it might not be his fault, How was he supposed to understand this kingdom that Jesus was talking about? Jesus was proposing a kingdom that was completely upside down to conventional thinking, a kingdom where if you lose your life, you will find it. And that's not what Peter was looking for. Corey explained to us last week that the use of the word Messiah is inherently political. That Peter and his friends weren't looking to lay their lives down. They were looking for political overthrow. When Peter claimed that Jesus was a Messiah the few weeks, the few verses before, he expected to be riding in into Jerusalem on a horse. He was not anticipating that he wasn't going to get to take back Jerusalem. He was not only anticipating overthrowing those powers. He was anticipating, sorry, he was not only anticipating overthrowing those powers, he was not anticipating those powers overtaking him. He was not anticipating the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and those that he had disdain for murdering his Lord. That was not his anticipation. And we can tell that the disappointment for Peter in those minutes must have been overwhelming. It must have been all-encompassing. And it's evident by the fact that in this passage, he straight up skips the resurrection. He doesn't say, wow, that's cool, Jesus. That's really amazing. You're going to be raised on the third day. There's going to be a resurrection. He lets the disappointment at the idea of death keep him from proceeding to the miracle that Jesus wanted to talk about. But again, how could Peter understand this kingdom that seemingly makes no sense. A kingdom that is upside down. N.T. Wright explains it like this. He says, when Lewis Carroll had become famous through his story, Alice in Wonderland, he decided to follow it up with a second book. you know the name of that book, Easton? That's going to be enough. So he decided to follow it up with a second book and both, where both of him and his readers figure out how to think inside out. And Alice, through the looking glass, he created a mirror-image world. In order to get somewhere in that world, you discover that it's no good trying to walk towards it. You look up and presently find that you're further away than you've ever been. In order to get there, you must set off in what seems to be the opposite direction. And it takes sustained mental effort to imagine all the ordinary activities of life working as in a mirror. That's how N.T. Wright explains it. So it makes us think that Jesus is proposing a through-the-looking-glass version of life. But I think he was also proposing an all-encompassing version of spirituality, one that couldn't be relegated to temple activity, one that couldn't just become occasional sacrifices. He was asking us to sacrifice ourselves, one where we must lose our lives to find it, Jesus was proposing an all-or-nothing faith. This summer, we've been trying to teach Eden how to swim. Anybody taught a child how to swim before? Just me? Cool. Uh, Sherry. Uh, So we've been teaching Eden how to swim, and her favorite place at the beginning of the summer was in the shallow end with floaties on, right? Just because that's a cool place to be. It's an easy place to be. And so, we slowly started removing the floaties just in the shallow end. Um, And she was swimming, man. She was swimming in the shallow end. And so, then we said, you know what we should do? We should slide you over to the deep end. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? And at first, she was like, yeah, that sounds like a perfect idea if I have my floaties. Let's do that if I have my floaties. So, we started in the deep end with the floaties on. And then slowly over the summer, we've taken the floaties off right? Yeah, yep, you did. So, we slowly began to take the floaties off, but before the the floaties came completely off, Eden and I had some words at the end, at the deep end. She said, I can't do this without floaties. It is impossible to do without floaties, but we had to try. We had to push her a little bit, had to push her in the deep end, had to see her swim back and forth from side to side of that pool a while. She was trying to tell me, you know I can swim. I swim in the shallow end, mom. So just let me do what I want in the deep end. You saw me swim, but you and I both know that you don't really know how to swim. You can't be trusted as a swimmer until that water is over your head and you got a kick to get to the side, Right? I couldn't trust her just saying, hey, you were really good at that in the shallow end. There you go. Let's just throw you in. Because you don't know how to swim until the water is over your head. And that's what Jesus is conveying to the disciples here. He's saying, I know you want to follow me, but that's going to require that you swim in the deep end. It's going to push you to act on what you say you believe. You say you can swim. When you're in over your head, that's when we got to start moving. And I think he conveys that pretty clearly when he brings up the cross. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And at that time, the disciples didn't know that Jesus' death was going to be at the cross, right? They had the imagery that Jesus was picking up and trying to put down in that instance was what the cross stood for for these people. And the disciples knew that the cross was for criminals. It was for enemies of the state. It was for revolutionaries. It was for slaves. So when he said, Take up your cross and follow me, he wasn't just asking them to follow him unto death. He was asking them to be radical, to live in this upside down kingdom and to be a voice for liberation and for freedom. He wasn't asking them just to die. He was asking them to live, to act, to move. He was asking them to live in a kingdom where we bless the gentle and the lowly, where we bless the peacemakers, where blessed are the persecuted, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He was asking them to live in a kingdom where we consider the least of these and we put the needs of others above our own where we sacrifice safety and possessions for the foreigner and the downtrodden. He was asking them to give up life as they knew it for a life that they couldn't comprehend. So Jesus goes straight from this is a glimpse of what the kingdom is, straight to this is what the kingdom is not. And the famous stewardship verse arises right after that, right? Right after take up my cross, it's what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He quickly goes from this is what it takes to be a follower to this is what's going to hinder you from being a follower. So it's, it's simple. It's, it's what is it going to take? That's everything. And what's going to stop you? Greed. And if I'm honest with you this morning, I would say that greed is something I personally struggle with. I've heard Andy say before, well, writing the check is the easy part. It's the compassion and love and kindness. That's the hard part. And I remember sitting in Sunday school thinking, not for me. Maybe for you, but not for me, because that's where I struggle. We live in a one income household. I do one of those Dave Ramsey zero budgets. Every dollar has a name, has a place, has an area. I have a giving budget. It's there. But it's those extra spots that always give me hiccup. Now I'm speaking for myself, Corey, he's the giver. Uh, me, I'm a, I'm a little stingy. <laughs> um, it's those extra times I always kind of feel greedy, like uh, Christmas this year, and we're picking out names of kids to give presents to, right? And I remember Corey wanted like 10. He was trying to take all of them. And I was like, Corey, just take one for now. Remember, we have our own kids. And I said it very emphatically. Like, Corey could forget our children. Like, he didn't know we had two kids. Like, Winnie can be forgotten. I just had to remind him, you know, we have two kids. We got to think about them. Because essentially, my greediness is fear it's fear that I won't have enough it's fear that God can run out it's fear that permeates my life and is exhibited in that specific area Peter exhibited his own fear when he grabbed Jesus in verse 22 and shook him and said this is never going to happen to you it's not that Peter didn't believe Jesus It's not that Peter didn't trust Jesus, and it's not that Peter didn't love Jesus. But Peter had fear. Peter had fear of the unknown. Peter had fear of what could be, and Peter had fear of what he didn't understand. It was fear that drove those decisions. But I can tell you this morning that I'm pretty sure I know the antidote. That the answer to fear in the gospel is always community. Because in times when I have fear about giving abundantly, sorry to bring Andy up again, but in times when I have fear about giving abundantly, I can hear Andy's voice in my head saying, you know, I, I struggle with worry, but I think about how God says if his eye is on the sparrow, what do I have to And it's in times of fear and worry over the passing of my dad over the last few months that I've had the phone calls and texts and cards and gifts from this community. See, it's hard for fear and greed to live and breathe in a community of believers that challenges you and impacts you and loves you. Because all of this may sound counterintuitive to us because fear and greed is what runs the world today. Decisions are made not by what can better our brothers and sisters, but by what keeps the status quo and what keeps us safe and what's easy. Just as how determined Eden was to keep on those floaties, because that's what was easy and that's what was safe but the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of floaties. It's, uh, The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of floaties, but it's a kingdom in the deep end. It's a kingdom in the deep. It's a kingdom in the deep with our brothers and sisters reveling in the coolness of God's love. So my prayer for us all today is that may we embrace that never-giving-up, undying love of God that pushes us to be better to our neighbors, to be better to our friends, and to give up fear. May we pray.